Good evening, everyone. Good to see you here. Really good. Um, God's word has always been publicly preached, publicly proclaimed. Um, I believe some older versions refer to Noah as a, a preacher. Um, we see in the text from Nehemiah um, and Ezra reading the word and explaining the word um, to the people that they could be reacquainted with it. Remember, this is in the period after the great um, sort of tumult of um, being taken away into captivity and they really had Nehemiah and Ezra have a responsibility to restore not only the physical borders of the country but trying to restore um, the sense of um, worship and a sense of spiritual um, sensibility in amongst the people and to try to re-establish all of those things that make for um, a people uh, of God. And part of that is the public declaration of God's word and the public explanation of God's word. So it might be that you know, sitting here on a Sunday evening after being here on a Sunday morning, it seems like a, a redundant task. Why can't we just all go home and you know, learn our memory verses and, and read the Bible um, ourselves? But the public declaration, public gathering of people, listening to God's word, trying to understand God's word, um, is a godly practice, is an ordained um, practice, and is helpful and is necessary. It's helpful for each of us um, to learn something new, but it's also helpful to declare to the world about, to declare um, to those that um, God's word is important. God's word needs to be listened to. Very much we see, you know, whether it is the prophets of old, whether it is the New Testament um, preachers, we see that there's a public aspect to this. This idea is that it's supposed to be transparent, that it's supposed to be something that is, is shared, something that is done together. And teaching, preaching, listening um, is a big part of that. And so tonight I just wanted to, to pull apart a sermon and to look at you know, what makes um, a sermon, what are the elements of a sermon. This in no way is to critique the sermons that we give, um, to say this is the structure that must be followed every time, to say this is how you preach a lesson. Um, quite the opposite. When Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, he wasn't giving something that we were supposed to repeat rotely, emptily, these exact words every time. He was giving a model. These are the elements. These are the different things that you should be thinking about when you come before God. The things that um, would typically um, constitute the things we would want to communicate to God. And so um, when he, he gives that prayer, he's pulling it apart and giving you know, examples, not supposed to be um, the one and only prayer that's ever delivered. Likewise, for our sermon that I want to pull apart tonight, let's have a look at, at what we might deem to be the first sermon, the first gospel meeting, that of Acts chapter 2, where Peter is explaining Pentecost. 
Um, possibly, probably the most famous sermon that we have, certainly one that's accessible, certainly one that is um, very well known. So you'll remember that Christ has died, he's been risen again, he's ascended, and some 50 days later, people are gathered for um, a festival that um, they typically would. They've come to Jerusalem, so not only are there people um, in Jerusalem that would normally be, but people have travelled from um, far and wide. And so they've come... And Peter um, stands amongst them, we're told in verse 14, with the eleven, and he raises his voice and he says to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, Being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord 
and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So that's the sermon. We can go home now. Let's pick it apart a bit. What does he do here? How is Peter presenting this first foundational preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, he draws on the Old Testament, doesn't he? Daniel mentioned this morning um, how so much of Isaiah, so much of the Psalms is designed to point towards, to point towards Christ. We read you know, Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews, references um, how these things were a shadow of of Christ and Christ is the fulfilment of these things and um, you know whether it's the priesthood all of these sorts of things we see here direct quotations direct referencing of scripture firstly of Joel and then of David in the Psalms a good lesson has I'm not even going to say good but a lesson that is designed to to preach um, the word references the word it uses scripture it draws on god's word when christ was rebuking satan in his periods of temptation he draws on scripture i'm picking just sort of general principles that are kind of out in the ether he's not drawing on um you know morals that are sort of pretty fuzzy but generally pretty well accepted He's being specific here and he's aware that his audience is literate in the scriptures and literate in the Old Testament. Um, but even so, um, we all you know, today have access to the scriptures and it's important for preachers, um, for when the word being taught, to actually look at the word, to look at its context, to look where it sits, to look at its differences, to pull all of these things together. Um, it's very easy to preach um, a lesson, to um, try to teach God's word and not actually refer to it. And we kind of, you know, there's this whole superstructure of commentary and of, um, you know, schools of thought that has been applied to the Bible. And all of that kind of sometimes gets debated. And meanwhile, the scriptures themselves are neglected. Remember when um, the young king found the word and it had been neglected for so long and they had to um, go back and to actually command that it, again, be you know, read out publicly. Nehemiah and Ezra reading that, the word publicly, um, not just you know, sort of general preaching like you know, Jonah. You know, Jonah was speaking to a very different audience. He was demanding a message of repentance. Um, but sermons draw on the scriptures. Sermons engage directly with the scriptures. It's the word of God that is inspired, that is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, what Daniel and I speak to you uh, isn't inspired, isn't profitable for those things unless it's drawing directly into these things. Whoever you know, preachers, whoever um, teaches the lessons. It's not about 
the preacher. It's not about um, whether we're from the school of Augustus Caesar or the school of Joseph Smith or whoever it might be. All stand before the scriptures, humbled, um, inferior. And all of us need to come back to that. Not only are they referencing the scripture, but in particular the quote from Joel, it's like Isaiah this morning, it's quite a difficult passage if it just sits there on its own. It's full of blood and thunder and references to this sort of very poetic language. Um, Again, it's prophetic language. It's pointing towards events far removed from Joel's time. And so... Um, In verse 22 there, you see um, Peter saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. He's providing an explanation. And when he goes on and he quotes David, he goes on and he explains the context of what David was talking about there. And so um, a sermon that's worth its salt is one that... Um, provides explanation, provides meaning, that it doesn't wrap um, the word of God in mystery and in um, vague things, nor does it try to use the word of God to justify whatever other points um, this out of the other might be trying to make. The word of God, that when it's taught, And we see that, again, referencing back to that that Nehemiah, where not only did they read the word, but they explained what it meant, explaining to people who had either forgot or neglected or had been several generations where it would seem the word really wasn't privileged and the priests uh, had been corrupted and had really neglected this part of their religious life. And so... The, the purpose of sermons, and again, you look back to when um, in the church in, um, in Corinth and Paul is having to call them out for sort of disorder, it would seem, and um, a, a lack of clarity and tr- people talking over each other and um, you know speaking in all their different tongues because they could. And Paul's saying, that's great that you can do those things, but actually the whole point is that an audience can understand and that it makes sense to people. And so no sermon is designed to burnish how great a public speaker or um, you know, how eloquent one can be. At, at its core, any sermon needs to make sense of God's word to its audience. And if it's not doing that then um, that's a problem. So not only does it, um, should any sermon of um, the church be explaining prophecy and explaining what the Bible is about, um, ultimately we know that it's the message of Christ that runs right throughout from the fall um, all the way through to to Revelation. Um, I think I read once that Song of Solomon is the only book of the Bible that doesn't make a direct reference to Jesus Christ. Um, We see here in this sermon, they're preaching Christ. They're teaching Christ and Him crucified. There's a lot that they could be explaining. There's a lot that they could be referencing. And I'm not saying that every sermon needs to be uh, a Lord's Supper talk, that there's not a place for 
discussion and obviously you know um, all everybody who teaches um, you draw on you know different aspects and whatever else and sometimes Christ might only be ten, you know, a tangent to um, you know, a topic on morality and these type of things but at its core most lessons should circle back to Christ and obviously Christ um, is a broad enough subject to bleed into a lot of these other topics but we see there in verses 22 to 24 Christ being put forward quite plainly and to say all this stuff that you saw from Christ all of these things that you knew to be different all of this evidence that was there these things attest to the uniqueness of Christ to the fulfillment that Christ is for these things then he goes on and he references um, David and we understand the importance of of David and the importance of um, you know, that sort of king kingly line, the reign, um, all of these things. And then Paul, um, Peter is putting that into the context of Christ and saying how even David himself was pointing towards something that is going to be superior, something that is more profound, something that is really important. And again, this is another element of um, a sermon that is necessary. It should focus on important things. We can't be wasting people's time and attention that they generously give um, on things that we might deem to be frivolous or um, things that don't actually affect and impact on one's life. And again, take a a wide range with that i'm not saying that you know unless it is only on these three subjects then anything else is all froth and bubble um, of course not but there's lots of um i think christ and, and the bible is invoked a lot of the times and then things move on into psychology or over into wellness and these sorts of things and we kind of try to adapt Christ into sort of contemporary models of um, yeah you know faddish or fads and um, ways of of thinking Uh, and again it's not to necessarily condemn those things but we need to be cautious that we're actually looking at what is of utmost importance and that is the sake of our souls and so we see here the issues of life and of death and of resurrection of conquering death being directly addressed here directly encompassed directly engaged with Effectively, you see there in um, the quote from, um, from David in verses 26 down to 28, <clears throat> pardon me. he says, um, My heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. The ways of life, these things are what we come to God for. You know, there's lots of ways in which we can get, I don't know, you know, diet help or motivation to exercise or motivation you know, to be a better 
husband and wife and, and these sorts of things. There's lots of different sources for family counselling or to, for friendship, these sorts of things. Um, all of those things are within the church because the church um, and through Christ seeks to focus on the things of life, the things of death. And so we see um, going on from down sort of verse 29 there down to 35, um, Peter effectively saying, where else are you going to seek life from except from the one who is raised from the dead, the one who conquered the grave? You can't find it in David. Look, here's his tomb. It's still here. He hasn't risen from the dead. If you're seeking life, if we're seeking eternal life, it's not to be found in earthly kings. It's not to be found in you know, moving forward, in Muhammad, in Buddha, in Joseph Smith, in all of these people who lived and died and unable to reconcile us away from sin and back to God, unable to pay the price of those things, unable to conquer the grave in the way Christ did, in the way that Christ, especially to this audience, you know, he appeared to over 500 people. The evidence was there. And so, again, we come to another really important element of a sermon, and that is that it needs to be logical. It needs to be based in evidence. We can't be fudging things. We can't be pretending things. This lesson, how many times do you see there where he uses the phrase, therefore? He's linking things together. He's saying, look, this is what Joel said. And look, you have the evidence. You've seen it yourself. We know these things to be true. It fulfills all of these things that Joel pointed towards, that Isaiah pointed towards. David said these things. Let me explain that. This is what this means. It's quite clear what we're looking at. And so um, the idea of logic, the idea of evidence... Even those things are kind of under attack and we see um, lots of people you know, freewheeling and sort of indulging in you know, theories and conspiracies and whatever else it might be. Um, but, and Christianity is very frequently charged with being you know, based on myth and based on um, traditions and these things. But um, surely a close reading of the Bible um, is a close reading of logic, is a close reading of evidence, is a close reading of um, conclusions. And... It's really great in this sermon, and I'm sure and I'm never going to pretend to deliver sermons like this, but not only do we see this evidence being gathered, um, this logic progressing, he leads to a killer conclusion, doesn't he? He leads to a call to action. He doesn't just leave it, well, yeah, that's why Christ came. Wasn't that really cool? But he concludes with what the audience needs to do about that, that it's meaningful for them, that it makes a difference to them, and it makes a difference if they reject this message. He's saying your sin put Christ on the cross. Your sin was the reason that Christ had to die. And by extension, 
All of us have sinned. All of us were in need of Christ's sacrifice. And then, not only that, but there's and people charge, you know, they say, oh, it's anti-Semitic to say the Jews are responsible for putting Christ to death. It's not the point at all. The point is that, you know, that happened and those things were there, but there's something you can do about it. And so Acts 2.38 is famous for a reason, because it's the ultimate call to action, the ultimate conclusion that draws all of this message, um, drawing on Scripture, drawing on explaining that, drawing on the evidence, following it all the way through. And its logical conclusion is that, yes, Christ died, but he was raised again. And therefore, in order to participate in that resurrection, in order to be identified with that, in order to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this seal of salvation that you can have, repent, turn away from these things, be baptized, make it as a symbol of washing away the old, of being buried as Christ was, in raising anew. And the second last element that we see here is the element of consistency. If you turn to the next chapter in Acts chapter 3, in verses 12 and following, you'll see Peter's second sermon. Guess what? It's pretty similar to the first. If you look at Paul's letters, which are in part, one would have to imagine, drawn off of you know, and consistent with his public teachings, pretty consistent with this first message here. If you look at, okay, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. We know, and Paul himself says, you know, follow the traditions that you were taught. You were given apostles, you were given evangelists, you were given teachers. You were given these things in order that we can remain consistent with this message while adapting and understanding the local context of each congregation, each individual's maturity, all of these sorts of things. And so... These things make up a sermon, drawing on Scripture, Old and New Testament, explaining them in a way that is accessible and um, seeks understanding for the audience, where Christ and Him crucified is effectively at the centre of what we keep coming back to. And that in doing so, we're teaching the things of life, the things that mean the most, the things that without all the other stuff, all the morality, all the call to, to doing the right thing, it's kind of not going to be all that helpful if we neglect the central part of salvation, of reconciling back to God. And the fact that these things are built not on myth, um, not on what I've kind of made up and might win the most amount of people and is kind of tickling people's ears and making sure that it's all inoffensive, but rather following logic, following evidence, being fair to all of the scriptures and drawing them together into behaviour that affects us, drawing conclusions that mean I have to change, I have to do something with this, this message that 
I have, am responsible. And this is the final part, the final element, is that it's not just about the sermon. It's not just about the preacher. It's not even about the preacher. The whole point of a lesson is the audience. The whole point of it is us. You aren't passive listeners. You haven't actually said anything for 25 minutes. You've indulged me, which is very generous of you. But ultimately, all of us take this away. All of us imbibe this and make decisions about what we do with this. And so we have to be really good audience members. We have to be fair to the word. Um, we can't, you know, we have to hold preachers accountable, but they aren't the ones who go out in the trenches and live the moral life on our behalf. We all do that. I actually think verse 38, you know, gets quoted the most, but verse 37 is probably the most important part in this whole, I mean, it's all important, I know, but verse 37 is really, really worthy of attention. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? They were active listeners. They were understanding listeners. You know, these weren't like the Athenian philosophers who some of them kind of shrugged. Some of them got a bit angry because resurrection sounded a bit weird. You know, they weren't like um, those that... You know, in Revelation, who was sort of lukewarm. These were like the Bereans. We want to know more. We want to test these things out. They responded immediately. And so a sermon needs an audience. It's not just speaking into the wind. I'm sure Daniel would love to do all sorts of other things if we, rather than just you know, speak into an empty room. We speak so that we all gain greater understanding, so that we move the dial a bit further on, so that there's a little bit more that we grasp a hold of, a little bit more that refreshes us, a little bit more that encourages us, a little bit more that builds us up, a little bit more of that sword piercing inside, getting past the self. Again, we know these things, we understand these things, you've all listened to many lessons. But I think it's really important for all of us to understand what we're listening to, why we're listening to it, and to make sure um, that we, in our own ways, understand, progress our knowledge, and share it with others. Thanks.